I'd just like to say thank you for inviting me to chair this session because it's something that's very close to my heart, um, architecture and space and the effect that that has on our mental health and well-being. So um, my name's Jackie Sands and I'm the Arts Coordinator for NHS Greater Glasgow and Clyde and, and on the panel today there's architect Richard Murphy, Andy Law, architect, and Angus Farquhar from NVA. Um, and the session today is how does the built environment around us impact on our health and well-being, for good or ill, and how should... Um, um, and what should architects do and take into consideration when um, looking at planning buildings and spaces and activities as artists as well, um, which um, are often places where we are at most vulnerable. Um, on the website, it said, um, you know, we're looking at the effects of whether it's the house or the apartment building we grew up in or it's the hospice or hospital where we may well end up in and be at our most vulnerable. So particularly um, here we've got two architects who are, who are looking at spaces which have been designed where people are most vulnerable. Um, and then we have Angus who's going to talk about things more broadly in the public realm. Just to say a very small thing about um, NHS Greater Glasgow and Clyde, over the last 10 or 11 years it's really been working very hard to improve the hospital environments and um, um, the design of health centres and um, I've been involved in all of those projects where we've had artists and architects working very closely together um, as early as possible and some earlier than others and um, the very first project I worked on was um, actually I was very lucky to work with Rachel Hall and Andy Law and they'd already had a historic conversation going on before I even arrived where artists, poets and architect, the architects had been talking and even the concept of the hospital came from a piece of poetry and it's a very successful building the um, the Stob Hill Hospital and it's, um, it's, a, it's a grove of larch surrounded by birch planting and can you remember the piece of poetry at all Andy? There's lots. <laughs> yeah. but, um, but I remember it is that it's but it's it's um larch clad courtyards surrounded by birch planting and that came from a from a poetic concept. The the, the piece yeah. in the in the sanctuary yeah. is a place apart having yeah. the quietness and self possession of a woodland glade. Yeah. And, and that thread through the whole design of the building, so a very successful piece of work. And another project we worked on um, was the um, John Chapel Child and Family Therapy Centre, and there that building needed to be exciting for repeat visits and it's completely changed the communication between clinicians and children coming for therapy sessions. There's now a lot of storytelling, um, there's, it looks like the borrowers live behind the skin of the building and under the floors. It's, there are little miniature scenes built into the walls um, and that was all developed by the artist Tim Taylor. And so the NHS in Glasgow has really started to see what artists and architects can do when they collaborate in context with the client group, the service providers and the service users. 
to, to create something really special that is actually going to rise above the clinical and, and take people, um, well, transport people um, to other places and when they're often in quite difficult situations. So um, I'm going to hand it over now to um, Richard to go first to talk about his work and then Andy and then Angus. But of course it's going to be a discussion. Thanks very much. Um, okay, well, I had prepared a talk with some slides, but somebody's thrown the slides all in the air and was onto a continual loop, so that's a bit confusing. Uh, to start with, um, the subject is so wide that uh, we, I have decided just to talk about buildings that we've designed specifically for mental health. I mean, we could talk about housing, we could talk about what makes a good office building, uh, why people, some, some people hate office buildings, I can understand why. We could talk about town design, we could talk about everything. It could be so wide that we'd be here till the middle of next week. So I'm concentrating on buildings specifically for health and mental health, of which um, the first was the very first Maggie Centre in Edinburgh, and then uh, two centres for dementia in Fife, and then finally a community mental health building in Belfast, which uh, opened last year, and then most importantly an 80-bed mental health uh, uh, hospital also in the centre of Belfast which is about to start on site and what all those buildings have in common is the uh, concentration on the idea of how you find your way around uh, obviously I mean you could say I remember my old professor from Glasgow here used to say there are three sorts of architectural space there's terminal space, circulation space and service space so there's rooms like we're in one now where we're doing something the circulation space, which is how you get from here to the street, and then the service space, which is sort of toilets and, you know, things that don't really matter and sort of ducks and all that kind of stuff. And in a way, I suppose, the thing that was being uniting all the projects we've done is to crusade against the corridor. And I have actually, I don't know if you've been looking at the pictures, you can't see them, I can't see them, but I always take a picture of a corridor every time I go to a hospital or a health centre or where it is because they're always deeply grim places and uh, people find their way around by following coloured lines on the floor and all this kind of stuff. And I think it's very important when designing buildings not... To, I mean, uh, uh, you, you meet a very sort of wide client, you know, lots of people get involved. I've noticed that there's nobody there called the patient, so in many ways the architect ends up being the guy who's sort of waving the flag for the patient and their relatives, which I think is terribly important as well. So orientation is, is everything. Obviously in a Maggie Centre that's very easy because you walk in and everything is inhabited space and I think that's terribly important. So it feels like someone's house really. That's an easy one and I think we've got the diagram that pops up at some stage showing the Maggie Centre. Then um, the dementia centres are much more interesting in a way because dementia is a particular problem uh, but again it is, it's always important to remember with dementia that People can be very, very physically active. They can also be very frail, but they can be very physically active and it's their um, mind that is um, dying. And so people can be walking around a lot. And it's, again, it's all about orientation. And we're, in Fife, we designed, first of all, we went further than most people, I think, in terms of how to design a bedroom, because this was a, a centre for people who were terminally dementially ill, so they would die there. So we tried to make it into a little house with a pitched roof and a, a window that was more than a window 
it's an inhabited place that you can sit in. I'm sorry, I can't show you the right slides, but never mind, they'll pop up at some stage. Um, but the other thing that's terribly important that people who work with dementia patients told us is that sunlight is an incredible stimulant, light generally, but sunlight. So there's a section organized in each room that doesn't matter which way it's looking, uh, there's always sunlight coming in through either the window or through a clear storage. So that's quite an important architectural element. But the most important thing is that the whole building is not what architects call a double-loaded corridor organisation, which is what 99.99% of, of uh, hospitals and centres are. It's a single-loaded circulation with rooms on one side, and on the other side you circulate around a garden. And obviously that gives issues of supervision, which have to be thought about quite carefully and how many nighttime staff there are and all that kind of stuff. But basically, a patient or their relative walks out of their room and they're immediately on the edge of a garden and there are places to sit in the circulation areas against that garden. And that's changed people's behaviour. Now, that idea then is transferred directly to uh, mental health. Now... Um, it, it's all what we call, I don't know, there's various diagrams that pop up, so the slides seem to have got stopped now, so I don't know what's happened. <laughs> We're sitting looking at Neil Gillespie's wonderful uh, Maggie Centre, which is very nice. Um, but uh, there were plans with little red dots on them, I don't know if you saw that before the slide machine packed up. Um, and that's what we call about destinations. Uh, so in other words, when you go into a building, you're trying to find a destination, you're trying to find your as Izzy used to call it, terminal space. And in Belfast, uh, there were something like 32 different destinations. And Belfast was a very interesting building because we don't put the brief together, but this instance was very fascinating, actually, because it was three things that had never been put together in one building before. And that was um, a, a psychiatrists, a visit to a psychiatrist, which is basically the mental health equivalent of going to see your GP. So you go and see someone for an hour and then go home. And that was it. Uh, and then there's other, there's other parts of the building where you would go for a day or a half day for some sort of therapy, usually group therapy in some way. And then there's another section of the building which was residential because when people have a mental breakdown up to then, the only thing that people can do with them is put them in a large institutionalised mental hospital. Whereas quite a lot of people, they need what's called respite. It's sometimes only for a day or a night or two nights or something like that. But up to two weeks, people can stay in this building. And so we designed it, I don't know if it'll ever pop up, um, it's a crazy slide situation, but never mind, uh, that there's like a little gatehouse that people can come into and be in their own community. And it was designed so that all the bedrooms are around one space, so there's a sense of communality about it. And then when you go from that to the rest of the building, you're outside, out of your front door, and into the other building's front door. So it's the feeling that you're not in an institution when you're staying there, and I think that's incredibly important. It's exactly the same with the Maggie Centre. I always started off, as we did the first Maggie Centre, we tried to define what it was all about. And we actually said, in a way, it's an anti-hospital building, it's an anti-institutional building, it's like walking into someone's house. And then the plan of that uh, mental health building is a sort of U-shape, where all the terminal spaces are sort of wrapped like a sausage around the plan, and then the circulation is deliberately around a courtyard garden, so that as soon as you enter, you are orientated around a garden. So people are apprehensive about going to buildings like this, of course they are. So there's a sense that they can't get lost, that's very important, and the corridor always tells you, I'm about to get lost. And then, uh, again, I could show you when the flight comes up, um, there is a piece of furniture 
in a consultation room, which you can see from the outside before you get into that room. So you know you have an expectation of what that room is all about. It's not got a door with a, with a sign on it saying consultation room. In other words, there's this sense that you're always trying to um, uh, reduce the amount of anxiety by helping people understand what's going to be next in the process. So that's been a great success, I'm happy to say, wonderful clients as well. And then, in a way, we gave ourselves the greatest test of all, saying, could we take those ideas and transfer them into an 80-bed hospital? Now, that is quite a big ask, because, um, you know, you can't do 80 beds without corridors, so they told us. Uh, but what we have in the um, project, which is about to start on site, is quite a revolutionary plan. And I'm very excited about it, actually, because obviously I've visited a lot of mental hospitals in the course of designing this building. It was a competition, incidentally. I mean, we were the only people with the different plan for everybody else, because the plans now are so standard. Uh, they are basically hot cross buns. They are uh, a cross of corridors with rooms off a corridor, little tiny sort of courtyard gardens in the corners, with the nurse in the middle. It's rather sort of prison-like, actually. There's not much difference between prison and mental hospitals or hospital generally. That is supposed to be the most efficient plan you could possibly have. And then you add them together, and you add them together, and you add them together in such a way that you have to give people a ball of wool when they enter the uh, hospital. And I've been, the tragedy is I've been to see a lot of hospitals that have been built in the last 20 years, and they're all the most depressing ones, actually paradoxically, because of this sense of total disorientation. So our building is, if you can imagine, I'll describe it with my hands because I haven't got a picture to show you, is a gatehouse, and then you walk outside again, having gone through the gatehouse, if you like, which is the reception, I'm using the word gatehouse um, generically, and then you walk into a cloister uh, around a garden, a large garden. We use water a lot as well because the, we think the sound of water in particular is um, very calming on people and people are distracted by it and it's always very enjoyable and people like fish and all that kind of stuff. But basically it's a big garden with a big cloister and it's outside space, this is terribly important. And then the individual wards, of which there are five, have their front door onto that garden. And when you enter the individual wards, they themselves are completely different from the usual. They are their own courtyard garden. And on three sides of that courtyard garden, just like the dementia homes, you have the individual uh, rooms, which again are roofed rooms again, so it's more of a sense of being a little house than a, than a, than a bedroom. And then the fourth side is all the communal facilities that you, that you need, including sort of living rooms and things which go into the garden. So again, you're totally orientated around the garden. You're encouraged to take shortcuts across the garden so that the garden is the main thing, not the inside spaces. And they're organised around this cloister. So you never have any corridors. And people said we couldn't do it. You can't do an 80-bed mental hospital or any sort of hospital without corridors when it's been done. And it's just about to start being built in Belfast. And it is a completely revolutionary plan. So watch this space. Thank you very much. Could I just ask the question, um, how did you challenge the hot cross bun approach? And what, you know, how did you get go back it's like going back to the future in a way um you know you're you're going back in time the cloisters always being a very um therapeutic um thing in history so um how did you get the people in belfast to 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 buy into your idea well first of all there has been until very recently a wonderful guy called john cole 
who is the man in charge of procuring professionals to build buildings in Belfast, and he's interested in architecture, he's into architects, architectural quality, and he runs little mini architectural competitions, and where the discussion, where you have an opportunity to put forward your ideas. Now that in itself is revolutionary because it doesn't happen on this side of the water, uh, where it's all done through box ticking. Um, so we'll never get to build a mental hospital here. I, I'm absolutely convinced of it. Um, so that's a huge leap forward. And then secondly, we have talked a lot about courtyard design generally, and not just in health buildings actually. We've done housing schemes which are about courtyard. There's one, actually there's two at the east end of Glasgow in uh, Gallagate, which are very much about creating a sense of neighbourliness. But it's all about, I mean, I was lucky at Belfast because we'd already done one building for them, which was smaller, which was the community mental health building, and they could instantly see what I was talking about. And I think, to be honest, you know, um, the problem is that it's a question of whose side you're on. I mean, if you're about the efficiency of the staff, then you'll go for the hot cross bun plan mm -hmm. because one nurse can sit there and she can look down or he can look down four corridors and you can see the moment anyone walks out of a room. Mm -hmm. And if that's what it's all about, then, you know, forget it really yeah. from our point of view. But we are trying to put forward an idea that's about people's well-being, about their orientation because they can be spending, you know, a number of weeks sometimes in this building and it needs to, they need to have a sort of sense of ownership. The other thing that's great about gardens, we visited a wonderful one in Birmingham, the patients are encouraged to do gardening, mm -hmm. which itself is very therapeutic. And uh, so to to say, I like to think of the Belfast project as gardens with hospital attached, rather than hospital with gardens. That's brilliant. No, I mean, yeah, um, amphitheatres used to have the um, hospital nearby, and then, um, you know, the hospitals were always attached. And um, at the Bromley by Bow Health Centre in London, that that actually um, was a health centre and it was a church, really. And then um, the GPs were added on, so it's always better if they're attached. Anyway, um, thank you very much. Um, Andy, um, would you like to talk yep. about your projects? Yeah, again. And of course, we're going to have questions, and um, if people want to ask questions as we're talking, it's meant to be a discussion. Fine. Andy. Uh, a bit, bit about me. I mean, we were asked to address uh, the topic of architecture and mental health. Uh, I have not much in the way of mental health buildings in my built portfolio. Uh, but I've designed several, but never got to build them. Uh, we entered a competition. Interestingly, there was some nodding heads going when Richard was decrying the mental health architecture of the last 20 years. Uh, we entered an RABA competition for a mental health uh, hospital down in London. And the reason that we became interested in something which was so far away was that part of the brief for the com competition said that the trust who were organising it rejected all the efforts that the NHS had ever made in mental health design. <laughs> Which, as they had just completed a large building themselves, was quite a bold statement. Uh, so that intrigued us. Uh, no, I, I have a, a long, back, long history of uh, designing healthcare buildings, and it seems to me that architecture for mental health really is asking at its core all the same questions that architecture is asking. We all want to design joyful, inspiring, reassuring, uplifting buildings. When you move that into the healthcare 
field, uh, the users of the buildings are to a greater or lesser extent vulnerable and therefore will be more affected by their environment uh, than the general public and move that into mental health uh, and it's even more extreme. So we have to be more careful, we have to try harder. And I think the, the conversation actually needs to start way before architects are involved uh, because there is anecdotal evidence in my life that large sections of the NHS and mainstream boards and such such like do not take mental health seriously enough, certainly in, in respect of commissioning buildings for it. Uh, the one mental health facility sort of mental health facility that I have completed was a ward refurbishment, which was a replacement project because the sixteen million pound standalone mental health facility that I was meant to do got cancelled. Uh, because of, it was the first thing to get cut when the money ran out. So uh, the buildings which uh, will flash up occasionally uh, on the screen, this is Maggie's Lanarkshire. Uh, Ma no, I'll, I'll start with Stophill Hospital that, uh, that Jackie referred to. Stophill is an ambulatory care hospital, uh, does the work more or less the same work as a general hospital but without beds. 80% uh, of it anyway, uh, and then we also did uh, a ward extension to it. And that led to a serious amount of investigation as to what actually affects people uh, when they're in what is a very big building. And the issues are, a, lo a lot of them Richard has already spoken about, uh, but the, co the core one in that building, because 2,000 patients a day entering and leaving, many of them for the first time. The core one is about not getting lost. Uh, there is nothing worse that an NHS building can do to somebody than let them get lost. But then there's a whole thing about contact with the outside and that sort of thing. But I don't want to drill down into the details the, uh, because there are always a lot of different answers to the question of how to provide an uplifting building. What we as a society have to do is to take the issues seriously and actually invest in them. And interestingly, when we were entering this competition uh, down in London, we did a bit more research into mental health specifically. And lo and behold, uh, the, the elements that go to make up the recovery process for mental health patients actually mirror all the things which we have been trying to do in architecture since the year dot. <coughs> Uh, see, if, see if I can remember some of them. I think there are eight, eight, eight that are normally listed out. Um, and it's to do with the ability to form relationships, uh, to have meaning in your life, uh, to have a stable base from which to work. Uh, what's the headline one now? It's gone from my brain. I had them a couple of minutes ago. <laughs> but everything that is decent about life needs to be encouraged by the architecture that we use. So the Maggie Centre, which is uh, on the screen now, I did, didn't personally design the Maggie Centre at Neil Gillespie, uh, but it is, it is a particular case in point where you have a patient group who are very vulnerable uh, and building on all Maggie's experience since Richard did the first one, uh, they've evolved this thing, which I presume you evolved with them, Richard, about 
the kitchen table being a place where people come together to solve problems in their lives, and therefore this, the heart of every Maggie's Centre is the kitchen table. Um, by the time we became involved, many years later, uh, it was working very well. It was working extremely well for women, but not so well for men. And so we evolved the idea that, well, do men sit around the kitchen table? Uh, to solve? Does everybody sit around the kitchen table, or is it just some people that sit around the kitchen table to solve their problems? And we had this kind of idea that actually a lot of people go for a walk when they want to solve a problem. So the Maggie's Centre that Neil came up with is actually a garden, part of which happens to be an enclosed building. But you can go for a walk around this garden. And then there are all sorts of other things led onto that where glazed courtyards, completely transparent courtyards, very small, two and a half, three metres uh, across, are dropped into the plan. And they divide, they're actually the space dividers in the plan, which allows people to be private without feeling alone because they're still aware of other people around them. These are small detail uh, techniques that are used to, to reassure to allow people to relax in, in the right sort of way. And they mirror a lot of things within Stob Hill. It's very difficult to talk without the images, though. <laughs> um, and basically, it's all about a conversation as well. The architect is not doing it on his own. and There are different answers for different situations. So it is incumbent on health boards, commissioning bodies, whoever they are, to set up the right conversations. Richard mentioned that the patient's never at the table. The patient's carer is never at the table. Uh, it's very often difficult to get the actual patients uh, to the table. But yes, architects do get a bit tired sometimes of being the only, being the only people carrying a flag for them. <laughs> mm. Mm. I think, sorry, just in response yep. to that, I mean, um, Within NHS Greater Glasgow and Clyde, it's very early days when we first worked together. Um, we now have um, art and environment strategy groups where we have reps on those groups. So, for example, we're just starting Clyde Bank Health Centre very early where the architect hasn't even designed the shape of the space and the artist is going to come in quite early on that with the landscape architect so that there's a creative dialogue. But also we've got young people at the table, we've got local people, we've got... Um, bankers, as they call them, <coughs> Clyde bankers, round the table, so that um, so that so that the new Clyde Bank Health Centre will be the best health centre for Clyde Bank and the best one that we've done so far. Because every time we do a new, can one, I ask? Yes, you're bringing together artists and architects. Yes, how are they selected? How are they selected? Yeah. Um, we're going to select. The, the, art, the architect's already on board right. and they've brought on, it's a hub process, so it's very tricky yes. to work with them. Um, but then we've got... Um, we've so the builder selected the architect? The sele we were told who we were working the with. The builder yeah. would have selected yeah. the architect. But we're very happy. Great start, isn't it? Great start. <laughs> yeah, but this is, this is what we're having to <laughs> Yeah, I realise. I'm, okay. I'm not blaming you, I'm just no, saying no. what a disaster so, so, this So we have is. an architect who's imposed on you. Yes. Mm. How does the artist get selected? We select the artist oh, with the architect. The architect yeah. assists with mm. selecting the artist. I brought the architect on because the architect needs to be as happy as the young person on the strategy group. Well, you've yeah. got one thing right anyway. Yes, we've got more than one thing right. <laughs> yeah. But, um, yeah, so, I mean, we're creating, as you say, 
the dialogue and the conversations. We're trying to get the right people round the table so that um, the needs and the aspirations are built in from a very early stage. But we are working within very difficult procurement frameworks. Do you know, do you know I mean, you're the arts coordinator yeah. for NHS Greater Glasgow, the first one, I believe. Do you know are there any other yes. health boards that have them? Yes, we've I got. I know some that do. Right, but I mean, <laughs> most health boards, they're all, they yeah. all have them in different shapes and forms now. Lothian, Aberdeen, um, Forth Valley, yeah. Right. But there will be some that won't, yeah. Um, Okay, not to hog the space. Um, Angus, um, you're going to approach this slightly differently, um, <coughs> talking about projects you've been involved in, um, particularly hidden gardens and possibly others. So um, if you'd just like to go, and then we'll just open it into a dialogue around can, space. Can I get a bit of a feel for who's here? Can you shout out to me a bit? What do you all do? Are you all of, is this, <laughs> give me some, give me some, uh, who works here in mental health? Yeah. All right, so uh, architects? None. Uh, students? Any other backgrounds that I haven't mentioned before? I'm participatory arts, we work with NHS, Fort Valley, with artists, mm -hmm. with architects, with patients. Right. Other arts backgrounds? Mm -hmm. Dancer, yeah. theatre, theatre, all right, so, yeah, so quite a bit, very mixed bag, very mixed bag. Um, I've got to come at this from a, a very different angle. I'm not a practicing architect. Um, I work with, although I work with design, I work with many architects and landscape architects in my practice NVA. Um, it seems to me that what we've talked about, the sensitivities in, 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 in both practices here is around the, the needs for a compassionate, a form of sort of compassion and a compassionate architecture, perhaps a level of listening that doesn't always uh, feature within all architectural practices and the sensitivity here is clearly very important. It also requires a certain amount of humility uh, and I think often the, the examples that have been referenced here have a uh, there's a certain humility there that that the sort of arrogant statement architecture doesn't really work if it's going to be an approach that is genuinely uh, client focused um, so have any of you been to the hidden gardens in uh, so I mean maybe just a bit of background might be interesting around the hidden gardens because it's a different type of mental health issue that's been dealt with and which is about the inspiration for making the garden in the first place. So the garden um, came about as a reaction to, to the illegal war in Iraq. And it was a very clear starting point to say that, that, that history is often appears to be written by the dominant political force of, of its time. So if you typify that period, it was new labour and then their disintegration through kind of ideological bank bankruptcy. And you can obviously typify these times if you want through, you know, a particular form of, of, of highly ideologically driven uh, use of austerity in order to impose very, very clear political solutions to very, very difficult, complex problems around poverty in society. <coughs> 
but it always feels to me that you have to, as perhaps as an artist, if you can, if you work, I mean, I, I work with, as you can already tell, fairly big themes. I don't, I'm not an individual artist making sort of craft-based work. I, I'm, I'm interested in ideology and philosophy. And it feels to me that you have to try and counteract those mainstream narratives within history because it was very, very clear from the Iraq war that many, many millions of people within this country did not agree and felt from the very beginning that the use of violence to solve major international problems was, is, is not the way forward. That if we, if we destroy compassion, consensual work, no matter what obstacles are put in the way, no matter how violent certain people's solutions are, the minute you, within mainstream democracies, follow a violent route, you're, you're, you're building the same, the same long-term issue. And we absolutely know through war that, that that has hugely destructive effects on mental health. I mean, we know this, you know, I'm sure I don't even have to rehearse to anyone in this room the impact of, of the use of violence, whether it is by state, whether it is by terrorist. It is all ultimately violent between, violence between human beings. So the Hidden Gardens was, was from a very, very clear um, spiritual and, and political um, background, wanting to create a space, uh, a garden space. Interesting, it's the reflection of the garden. And to look at the use of the garden through history and the use of the garden as paradise, as it has been drawn upon from Christian monastic traditions, from the earlier temple forms, both within Greek traditions, within Hindu traditions, within the Muslim faith, uh, Muslim faith and the Kaaba, and walking around the central stone. You begin to find the commonality between all the major faith groups in terms of the use of perambulation, the use of creating simple ritual space through how, how, how you move and how that can lead to a deeper appreciation of humanity within nature and within a natural setting. So that was the starting point for putting together a, a, a group of artists and landscape architects to design something that would not be a pastiche of any of those forms I've mentioned, you know, to make a pastiche of a mogul garden, for example, but to draw on those different, if you like, core design philosophies that appear in various religious texts and within, within various faith groups at various points within their history and reflect that in a very modern contemporary garden. And uh, I think that, that um, these, the, the, these are tiny gestures. And obviously I made some fairly grandiose statements at the, at the start of, 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 of what I've said. But you, you can only in your own frame make small gestures, but I do still think they're important and they can symbolize something much bigger than themselves. And um, I'll simply draw, draw one um, uh, thing that made me think it had worked, let's say, a few years later on, because ultimately it's about the use and the users. Uh, it's not about what I'm talking about here, it's about whether that is manifest in terms of how people have used it. And, we did a, in, in the early, it's now been going for about 11, 11, 12 years, the Hidden Gardens, and about three, four years in, we were doing a number of festivals of light, again, related to specific faith groups. So Hanukkah with the Jewish community, Eid with the Muslim community, um, Diwali with the, the Hindu Sikh community, Christmas with the Christian community, uh, Vesak with the Buddhist community. 
So it's a, different ways that you might manifest, again, working with contemporary artists and working through uh, the ideas of these festivals, but doing something very contemporary with it. When we did Eid, there was uh, three and a half thousand uh, people came into uh, Tramway that night uh, for, the, for the end of Ramadan. And it was, it was major. It was a real moment where that community had kind of really taken over this space and it was a big, wild atmosphere. And um, a, a woman turned around to me and uh, we were stood in the balcony working out. She's a local public shields woman, um, probably fairly, uh, fairly conservative um, Muslim background. And she just said, you know, I've done Christmas for years with my work colleagues and, you know, it's, it's, I can actually understand it. It's not my festival, I can understand it. She, but she said, this, this night is the first time I've felt vis visible in this city. Interesting idea, isn't it? The first time I've felt visible. Because it, it was that sense. And it's interesting, you know, because very vibrant things happen within communities, but this was about a crossover because, of course, I'm mainstream white. And, I, you know, I'm well-funded for what I do and I have, a, I have, you know, all of the luxury that comes from my education, my background, all the rest of it. Uh, but this was about the integration of those two things. It wasn't something that was a specifically a community festival. It had, gone, it had gone to something bigger and it was about that crossover and visibility to say this was a big, big shout. And that seemed... That seemed to me, going back to the original theme of this and the original reason to make the garden, these small steps are very, very, very important. And there's, there's just no doubt that these are really, really dark times. Dark times because the narrative of violence, the narrative of fascism, the deep, deep, deep vulgarity of the right wing as it's beginning to manifest itself across Europe, across America, and within the conservative ideologies that are being pumped out in the Middle East just now from all sides. They're really, really dark times. And voices, therefore, of compassion, and voices that put forward non-violent, non respectful solutions are really, really important because these values if they're not shouted, if they're not spoken, if they're not articulated, they just get washed away in the shrill, you know, in those shrill, competitive, violent voices which we're hearing now reflected again and again on a daily level. So I think it's a, there's a very, very important narrative going on here. This is on a much, much wider scale than, than, than the gardens. The images that you've seen up there relate to St. Peter's, and I've, I've chosen for the conference more to obviously speak about, about, about that, but the, um, some of the principles that, that, that in, in that building are just interesting to reference is that, is that perhaps in complete contrast to the type of healing spaces that ha have been referenced so far, including the Hidden Gardens, that's a place that's been very broken and has been uh, a, you know, a liminal space for the, since 1979. Uh, when it stopped being a, a seminary for priests. But within that uh, rawness and within its broken, ruined form, it's actually been a tremendous place of inspiration for many people over the last 20 years. And it's been accessed creatively by people who, in societal terms, you might call marginal or alienated. You know, because there's traditional terms. There's been a lot of heavy graffiti work there. There's been a lot of outsider art made there. 
and it has actually operated as a very interesting outsider space. And that's interesting that, that sometimes it's the more broken forms that, that can allow people to express themselves and allow themselves to find well-being. It's not always about creating perfect new spaces, but it's allowing within, its, within that state, it allows, allows people to behave in different ways and to feel comfortable in a way where they don't always feel comfortable in more formal buildings within society. So that's the start of a very different conversation, but one that we will take forward in our awareness of how we design and how we take that space forward. It will remain a very raw environment in the way we uh, design it. We'll bring back sections of the building in, 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 in a very intense level of restoration and other elements we will leave as raw as it's possible to leave. And to always have that sort of contrast to, to keep the vulnerability. And, and again, to me, that feels, going back to the first phrase, it feels like a more humble approach to a, a truly um, great historic building, but to be humble about what you do with it. I've said enough anyway. Thank you very much. Um, so Can I just say, <coughs> you mentioned of uh, the Festivals of Light things, it reminded me what the headline <laughs> element is. Oh, <laughs> it's hope. Hope. And it actually un encompasses all the rest when, when you're talking about mental health, that yeah. you have to give people hope. And I think that that's one thing I was just thinking, because everyone has said all sorts of really important words while we've, while we've been talking. And, um, you know, being reflected today, that was in the um, Joe Clifford session earlier, but um, being reflected in the garden and lots, lots of different people being reflected in festivals being reflected. And um, then... The design, I'm interested in how the design of space can actually allow that to happen. And so I suppose they're asking questions out there. I mean, it, Hope, what are the principles for designing these really special and important places? We've got the word compassion, we've got humanity in healthcare, we've got hope. Um, and doing it from this perspective, what other words could we actually add to the list? Question. It's an invite. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yes, it's you. Oh, I was just thinking, well, gardens has been a, a, a thing. Even with the old asylums, they were always in picturesque, picturesque places by the seaside, by the, you know, in the countryside, away from everything else. But also in an environment which would be seen even nowadays as a healing environment. So having gardens, gardening and flowers and being next to nature in itself is therapeutic. So I was just thinking the, I entirely the agree. gardening. Yep. If you design the circulation around gardens, you're off to a flying yeah. start, actually. Yep. If you design the circulation as just a circulation, it's not going anywhere. Well, yeah. it's going somewhere, but it's not going anywhere spiritually. Kind of more human, earthly sort of approach, isn't it? There's a lot of evidence around gardens, views onto nature, being involved in gardening projects, which we know about, um, which can have huge healing effects, and people leaving hospital earlier, taking less painkilling drugs, so part of managing patient care, it's very important to have a garden. And I think now people are really listening to that. 
but um, I know on some projects the, the green space is the thing that gets cut um, and people are interested in car parks more than green space still and um, it's, it's a huge challenge but I think in mental health and residential care and places like that, gardens, yeah, I think hugely important. I just put a rider to that, I mean I hate I hate it when planners describe green space because it's just usually so many square metres of garden. What I'm talking about is making it central to the circulation of the building and that's really, really important to me. Um, the other thing I wanted to mention is that I, <laughs> people who get forgotten about sometimes are the staff. And the morale of the staff, I think, has a huge effect on the patients. I don't, I don't have any studies to back me up and I think it seems to be a fairly reasonable assumption that if you've got happy staff who look forward to going to work in the morning uh, then rather than those who are resentful and are always taking time off or people who've got this massive staff turnover that's not very good for patients either and I must say I'm always my hair stands on end sometimes I go to the occasional conference and the conference is all about hospital planning we're not talking about mental health here particularly any sort of hospital in this People talk about the sort of efficiency of the whole thing and um, how uh, a nurse can see all these different doors and whatnot and they haven't noticed that the place that the nurse actually works is a deeply depressing place with no artificial, no natural light, no view out, very little ventilation and surprise, surprise, we have extraordinary dropout rates in the nursing world actually. It's incredible. We spend a lot of money training people and they rarely get past 40. Uh, this is something that was pointed out to me when we did the dementia home in Fife. There was an amazing lady who I thought was a saint called Fiona who'd spent about 25 years of her life on a single corridor in a deeply depressing dementia home in Kokodi. And she was one of the most dedicated, she is one of the most dedicated people I've ever met in my life. And she and I sat down when we were allowed to get out of sight of the project managers to design the building between the two of us really. And she said this problem, I mean, she, she's been there for 25 years, she said it's incredible the staff turnover we have because it just gets people so down working here. And, um, and then when we moved to Fife, it was a completely different story. People were actually wanting to go and work there. And I think that's really important as well as the effect on the patients, the effect on the staff. And they don't get much of a look in in the whole process either, actually, to be honest. So it's absolutely true, and it's a shame that we have to justify good design in these terms to get it accepted. Mm -hmm. But the saving which you will have given that home by the providing them with <coughs> less staff turnover, happy staff, happy patients, the breed happy staff, breed happy patients, breed happy staff, I mean, is colossal. Our project guy, who was very good, design champion, he did do a study actually, a post-inhabitation study, which is very interesting. And he said what was very interesting between the Kokodi and the Stratheden um, move was the number of incidents had reduced. Now an incident is where someone um, either, it's usually something to do with self-harm or occasionally harms another patient or not. But an incident has to, it then triggers, as I'm sure the nursing staff here in the audience will know, it, whole, it triggers a whole series of investigative things which have to be gone through, understandably. That is actually very expensive and very time-consuming in everyone's time. And the, the, a different design building had massively reduced the number of incidents. So actually, even in putting it in just merely economic terms, it was a good idea. <laughs> I, it baffles me. I, I always want to know why culture has to stop at the hospital 
door and why you know design in the public realm and major public buildings all the, it, this exceptional and that, I think that's why I, be, I came into this from theatre design then I went and did an art and architecture because I knew these buildings and these spaces were affecting me and I was very interested in how it was affecting me and psychologically you know, as a theatre designer you can affect how the audience feels through, through how you design and the emotional environment that you're setting up so I was very interested in, in, in these spaces but then having worked in the NHS um, now <coughs> I realised the pressures people are under and the different agendas that are being fought out in order to get a new building <coughs> And so, you know, looking out there at the Maggie centres, they're absolutely lo luxurious places. You know, these are places where wonderful design can happen. And if, you know, if we can get those qualities back into hospitals, which we try to do, but we don't always achieve, you know, dignity, um, supporting wayfinding, personalisation, those are the words that we've used on the Southern and we go back to all the time. Um, it brings a more compassionate... Health, I yes. just
to different people. So we have somehow to come up with an idea each time which is going to give the right amount of choice and the right amount of opportunity. Uh, and it'd be interesting to hear if there's any experiences of good or bad yes. uh, in, that, in that regard. Yes. I'm involved in the um, New Royal Edinburgh Hospital in Edinburgh, which is a psychiatric institution. Mm -hmm. The first thing we did was um, get a group of stakeholders, which was staff, carers, members of the public, patients, and asked them what they wanted to feel like mm -hmm. on the new campus. And that was a really interesting question. And no huge surprise, everyone wanted to feel the same, whether they were a patient, a carer, yeah. a staff member, or a professional. Yeah. So people, people wanted to feel safe, they wanted to feel secure, and they wanted to be in a, an environment which was about using art and was about using green space. So as a result of that, we've been able to attract quite a significant amount of funding to make the therapeutic impact of the hospital bigger than just the internal buildings. So all the space around it will be used as part of a, um, to support the therapeutic impact of patients, staff and carers. And how, so how is the experience? Amazing. I haven't been into the building, but it's not from built yet. It's getting built at the moment. Oh. So it will be finished by December. Oh, sorry, right. Yes. Yeah, sorry. Before getting we even... Um, had a discussion with planners or with Hubco and the very, very complicated procurement process, the first thing we did was ask people how they wanted to yeah. feel. Yeah. And I think that's a really significant thing and it shows that there is a shift, um, I think, in terms of how people are conceptualising mental health and wellbeing within the built environment. I was really interested in what you said about um, violence, because I think sometimes when we're talking about mental health and wellbeing, we forget that a lot of people that are in hospital are there against their right. Um, are there because they have to be, because they've been sectioned. So we're actually doing something quite violent to people mm. in terms of we're restricting their, their mm. rights. Mm -hmm. And I think we don't often talk about that enough. So I'm really interested in what you were saying about um, not over-designing and actually allowing some freedom of space as well. If yeah. I was to it it's, it, it's really interesting. The, 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 the notion of the, pr the productive life mm -hmm. of a patient is, is, as you say, absolutely crucial. My, my, wife, my wife works at the Kibble. Uh, secure unit and she's been doing a, a lot of work there with uh, uh, with food and, and mm -hmm. chefing she, she chefs 18 kids many of these have uh, committed ex extremely violent acts or have had very violent acts done mm -hmm. against them you know you can imagine the, the setting now they are able to work with knives there and they work mm -hmm. and they work cutting up uh, onions etc 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 uh, and this this is a point of trust that's given, yeah. and it starts from the point of trust. Of course, if that's violated in any way, then the right is removed. But it's a really the 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 communal meal, the making of the meal. Uh, and I have to say, it's the you, you know, in, and you can imagine, it's a, it's it's quite a, a challenging institution. It's a very stressful workplace, and. Um, it's the it's the meals. That's the, that's the happiest feedback I ever get from that from from her her her, her weekly work, is the eighteen kids yesterday and we made pizzas and we made ten different types of pizzas and then we fed all the staff, and it's such a great way, for people to be able to give positive feedback to something for something they've done, and so that productive life is very very important and I'd I'd fully back up the support. Uh, one other another. Um, thing that NVA did was uh, set up SAGE, which is Sow and Grow Everywhere, which was part of that, a much wider process that many, many people are involved in now around the, 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 the creation of more productive, uh, so the green spaces have a productive element mm -hmm. as an absolute given, 
And this is the important thing, is this shouldn't be best practice. Mm -hmm. And I think that many of you will have, and you've, you've, you've mentioned this through the complexities of um, all the different elements which fight against each other to get budgets and all the rest of it. There's still definitely a disjunct between what's coming out of Scottish Government and local government in terms of an aspiration, a strategy, a set of tactics around the use of productive space, and still somehow the gap to whether that is then always translated. So there should always be a growing space. It should just be an absolute given that anywhere there is green space, there should be a growing space. It's not, it's not difficult. It's not even expensive. But it's about a mind shift where the strategy doesn't always filter down into the briefs or in, in, in the way things funny. Many, many people are doing it naturally and in their own things, so I don't want to cast aspersions in that sense. But what you, of course, want is that joining up, this difficult thing, the joining up of, of bigger government strategies so that every single time somewhere is made, it's a given that all of the therapeutic and social benefits, you don't even need to discuss it anymore, just design the space with that inherently within it, and then, you, and then that encourages that, those activities. A couple, of, sorry, a couple of sort of encouraging things, so we're not all getting depressed together. Yeah. Um, it does seem, from my outside observation, that there has been a move towards locking up fewer and fewer people, actually. And most of the hospitals I've been involved in, people are actually able to discharge themselves. There's only a very small minority who aren't. Um, but what I want to ask is this, somebody used the word campus, almost without you know, campus. And in a funny sort of way, I mean, that's what the Victorians did, didn't they? They put mental hospitals in places which were out in the countryside, usually, or in the suburbs. And they spent a lot of money on them, incidentally. They're some very, very fine buildings, but, which was quite interesting, actually, about the Victorians. Um, but there has been a move, certainly in Northern Ireland, that uh, to bring these uh, back into mainstream hospital campuses. So, um, that's, so they're, they're actually in the city again which is quite interesting, because that means that people get visited a lot more than they used to. But there's also a problem, because um, any um, mental, uh, residential mental hospital that goes above first floor, goes above ground floor, is, begins to become very institutional very quickly, because you can't have access to outside space very easily, you, you can't really have balconies, you have all sorts of fire uh, issues that have got to be dealt with. So we've battled very much for having single-storey buildings. I mean, once you go above ground floor, it gets very complicated. And, of course, those are very land-hungry. So there's a conflict there, actually, between the two. Uh, but it's very sad. I'll, in Fife, the opposite happened. You know, uh, an institution which was a horrible building, but at least it was in the centre of Kokodi, and it was visited by relatives a lot. Suddenly, everyone gets shipped off to the middle of nowhere near Cooper, and people don't have <coughs> the number of visits plummeted. And there was no opportunity for any of the patients to in any way even see the outside world, other than a nice view of some hills and some sheep and things. Uh, and they, whereas previously they could see people on a street and what have you. And I'm always very sad when that happens, actually, because uh, whilst people need to be safe, somebody said that, I can't remember what it was, and the sense of security, I always think the idea of cutting yourself off from real life. And I might go one bit further. I had a very interesting, slightly getting off the subject here, but it's something okay. I, I feel quite passionate about, is how we might think creatively in putting different <coughs> sorts of people together. And I've been involved in looking at the design of old people's homes, which is, in this country, such a depressing thing. It's sort of, the NHS are, have got their rules and that's the way they do them, and the private sector, it's all about making money and making rather mean, horrible corridor planning. And nobody seems to be in the sort of third way, if you like. Nobody's trying to do anything there. 
It's quite depressing. And about 30 years ago, I went on a cycling holiday to the Faroe Islands, of all places. <coughs> it's a very remote place and very hilly. And we stopped, for, uh, we stopped one night in a youth hostel. And this, being a hilly sort of place, it was a four-storey building that sort of stepped down the hill like that. And the top two storeys was the youth hostel, and it was a nice summer, so it was very long light, and we're all sitting out in the garden, having a drink and whatnot. And there were all these old people in the garden as well. well what were they doing? They're not youth hosteling. You know, what are these people doing here? So we asked. And the bottom two floors of this building was the old people's home. <laughs> and they were sort of separate, but they were the same building, but they were separate, but they all shared the same garden. So inevitably we got talking to some nice guy who spoke reasonable English. And um, we said, uh, you know, do you like living in this old people's home? And he said, oh, it's wonderful. You know, every, time, every night I come out and I talk to different young people from all over the world. You know, and that's been with me a long time, that what we tend to do is you know, section people in the broadest sense of the word. We put old people in an old people's home, and we put primary school children in a primary school. How wonderful it would be if every old people's home had a primary school next to it, because the interaction between two groups of people would be absolutely amazing, in my okay. opinion. There is one. Oh, great. I've seen that. I'm not too sure if it's in England or if it's in... No, I think it is in England. There's a nursery school that's now delivering within a care home. Seattle. Seattle. Is it Seattle? Is that America? <laughs> One in the world. <laughs> well, I, I just saw it recently. Yeah, well, yeah. It was absolutely phenomenal. The impact it was having both on the young people and hmm. the older people and well was being documented. So somebody's doing it somewhere. Hmm. And it happens informally as well, Moan. Moan uh, I've got twin girls who are at Kelvin, Kelvin Dale, just up near Annisland, and that's next to one of the Erskine uh, ex-forces uh, homes. And they go in, they went in about four or five times a year, uh, did burns, did, you know, and vari various sing-songs both ways uh, with, with some people who are... Uh, um, and it, of course, song is what gets through to people, and the memory of song going back, and it yeah, it absolutely works very, very well. I mean, that's only a, an informal example, but it's it's still a good example. Yeah. Do you remember when the Queen Mother was a hundred? They had a wonderful documentary on the television, and it looked at about a dozen people who were a hundred at the same time, and they followed them, and they asked the old question, you know, what does it take to live to be a hundred? And um, so they had this kind of quite serious psychiatrist or psychologist who was analysing these people, and they came up with two observations. First of all, each one of these people got out every day. They did something, even if it was just to walk to the corner shop to buy a paper. One guy was still working in a motorbike repair shop. I mean, fantastic. <laughs> you saw him on his motorbike, aged 100, amazing guy. And the other thing is, they kept in touch with people who were significantly younger than them on a daily basis. I mean, obviously, when you're 100, everyone's younger than you are. But, um, uh, but they were very significantly younger. And there was one brilliant interview which has filled me full of hope for the future. It's this lady describing to the interviewer that she'd been talking to her great-granddaughter or something. And now she really does understand the difference between house music and garage music. You know? And I just think, fantastic. How wonderful it is. But what we actually do with old people, we just surround them with other old people. I mean, I would be... I'd be mortified to spend the rest of my life with people of my age. That's why I like going to work. Who died at an alarming rate. Everyone's younger than me in the office, thank God, you know, it's great. And I just think mixing people up yeah. is what makes life interesting, yeah. you know? And I think that's a really good way to, to, to bring this to a conclusion. And I was reading an article yesterday about buildings and design and boredom. 
And it's boredom that will, will kill us. And um, boredom, <laughs> boredom is the thing we need to avoid. Sadness, um, boredom has more of a detrimental effect on us than sadness does. We can go through periods of sadness and come out the other side, but boredom is the thing that will really do us in. So I think, you know, the designing spaces, green spaces, places to go, stimulation, meaningful activity, and being able to get out and buy a paper or watch someone even get a ticket from a ticket machine is 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 something. And, you know, being able to look out of windows. So I think, um, you know, people who have a voice around all of this should use it on every opportunity um, when it comes to designing new spaces and mixing people up and not just let people decide to build these buildings because it's economical and we need to decide what spaces we need for what functions. It's more about the social and emotional um, spaces that, that architects and artists and all the people, people who are involved um, either through illness or through compassion should get together and really, really push this agenda beyond the clinical. <laughs> Thank you.